This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the Quantization Podcast. This is the second part of the sixth episode. Like the first part, we have Carly Howell in conversation with Vivek Sharia. This is Season 1, called Signal, Episode 6, Part 2, Personal Identity and the Music Industry. podcast quantization today to talk about gender and music and (laughs) have you had any surprising reactions to your music or things that people uh that just totally you weren't expecting it's so funny i like maybe i'm in a good mood today i can only think of positive things (laughs) I mean, for me, so when I came out as trans last year on my 35th birthday, I, it was accompanied by a song called Girl, It's Your Time, mm-hmm. one of the songs that we did with QSO. But the original version's like in this sort of like more electronic um, vibe. And the response to that song for me has just meant so much. Just like especially coming from trans and gender nonconforming people, especially just opening for Tegan and Sarah, we did that song every night at the end of our set and my brother and I are band too attached and night after night we had, you know, trans and gender nonconforming, like young, young kids come up and be like, this is my first concert. This was, thank you for being trans on stage. Thank you for being visible. You know, thank you for saying that. And it just made me think, first of all, it made me think about my first concert, which was Alanis Morissette. Uh, but like, imagine if your first concert as a trans person was seeing another trans person, like how mm-hmm. I feel really fortunate to have been that experience. And and not only that, like I'm uh, thinking about like, you know, there were a couple of reviews, too, of like cisgender people who were like, this was the first time I saw a trans person on stage to their knowledge. And again, like I, I think it just made me re- I was writing part time woman at the time of this tour. And I think it really confirmed for me the response to that song. Girl, it's your time, especially really confirmed for me the importance about singing about the things I was writing about girlhood misogyny, lateral violence between women, like all of these things felt so suddenly like the importance of them felt confirmed by the response because it made me think a lot about like pop music in general and like how often do you I mean, I can relate to a lot of songs from a very general perspective, like girl, you left me, like, sure, I I can relate to that. But when, you know, you have a lyric like, girl, it's your body, don't ever say you're sorry, and you're a trans person and a trans person singing that to you, like, 
I hope that that feels special and individual in a way that like, boy, don't go. <laughs> Mostly I just, it really gave me the confidence to keep writing by thinking about the kinds of messages I would love to hear in pop music that just don't really exist. And again, that's not to say, of course, there's certainly trans like musicians and people who are writing about gender and music. But again, I think that we are still in the significant minority. So the response to Girl It's Your Time made me want to keep investing in that direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't come into my queerness until until my late 20s. And it, for me, it wasn't a suppressed thing that, that I was, you know, struggling to come sure, out of the closet. Sure. It just wasn't really a part of my identity that I had kind of come into knowing. Sure. Um, but when I did... I would say music was a big place where I oh, really nice. started to notice those normatives, you know, exactly. and a, a huge exactly. place where I was all of a sudden started to realize that like there's just this whole like all of these love songs that are from. men singing about women or women singing about men. Totally. And I was like, wow, there's so many places that you can just change one word and it changes the entire context of the song totally. depending on who's singing it and who they're singing it to. And when I started writing from that perspective, you know, I'd already been writing music and I, I don't know that pronouns played prominently into the music that I was writing. I think I was really more writing from an experiential place about what I felt as opposed to writing about a character or sure, writing about yeah. another person. But when I started to explore that, I realized how powerful that was and also how exposed it was. And even though I was, I mean, I'm not performing to hundreds of people that sure, don't know me. Sure. I'm literally performing to like 30 of my closest friends and sure, family, you sure. know, who all know, the, you know, the relationships that I'm in and, and the people that I'm singing about. It's not any secret. But it was it was interesting for me to just feel that um, uh, vulnerability of of singing something in a way that is just not normally done. Totally. And I also play with a number of queer singer-songwriters and and artists whose music um isn't always transparent in those ways. If of you course. know that person, you exactly. know who they're singing about, you know the, that that song is about their partner, but the the lyrics aren't necessarily exposed in that way or in there's a couple of cases where they're very specifically normative um even though that's not that person's experience. Totally. And so it's interesting for me to see those people make those choices and recognize, like, to feel so deeply in my heart that I just want this, you know, woman to sing about another woman in the song exactly. and just put it out there. Exactly. And yet also really realize how how scary that can be and how much judgment or, you totally. know, like... Even in 2017, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you open yourself up to... Yeah, I mean, your music is... I think it's really amazing that it is inviting other people to see themselves in the music not in that generalized way or not in that oh I can relate to it because I've had that feeling of love or I've had that feeling of you know being down and out but that it's a very specific about who is singing it totally. you know in terms of the identity that's being expressed in the song So I love your positivity. It's beautiful. <laughs> and I, I more negative, more negative. <laughs> no, but it, it was interesting thinking about 
coming into this podcast because when I was given the topic of gender and music, I immediately went to those places of like where like the barriers that exist. Oh, I mean, I oppression have those is a, a strong <laughs> word, you know, and I don't want to take that word away from people who have very like felt oppressed in very, very specific and very real ways. But as I'm a woman and I play the bass, the double bass, which is like this, you know, big instrument that is actually played by a lot of women. But it's, um, it's amazing to me how many people still tell me like, oh, you don't see people, you don't see women playing the bass. It's like, yeah, you do all the time. Like, where are you seeing music? You know, like, uh, it, like the, there's tons of female bass players out there. But yet it still feels like this arena, like you were speaking about this idea of having to prove yourself and having to be in this like male arena and to behave in a certain way or to prove even just being an instrumentalist, the number of times that exactly. I show up and people are like, OK, here's your microphone. And I'm like, well, right. I do sing backup vocals, but I'm also going to need that bass amp, you know, <laughs> like yeah. times that I've showed up for gigs and the sound guy literally is like, oh, where's the bass player? I'm like, you mean the bass that's on my back? And they're like, oh, we thought you were carrying it for somebody like, oh, you thought you I was carrying it for my boyfriend. Like, I'm just like his roadie. You know, why can't I just show up with the bass? So. Those kinds of things come up for me, Absolutely. these places where, like, Absolutely. I've just been perceived as as something else immediately. Um, and also, I feel really grateful to play in a lot of all-female bands and to play in those arenas that are places where women can be together to make music because mm -hmm. it is a special environment and it is a very... Um, different way of making music i you know i'm not going to gloss over the idea that it oh it's exactly the same of it's course, it's of not course, exactly course, the yeah. same you know but at the same time they can feel very kitschy or very like oh we're dolls on stage and you're going to kind of like put on this spectacular right. you know like come see the girls play right because they can't actually just be playing with the guys of course right this is all to say that those were the things that came up for me, but I didn't want to go to that place specifically or initially because I think that people have all kinds of different experiences, right? And your experience is really interesting to me because you've maybe have experiences kind of on both sides of that gender divide, so to speak, totally. right? And the way that people are interacting with you. So I'm interested to know for you what barriers you see existing for I mean, we could we could use the broad label of like LGBTQ2S, which is not specifically gender. You know, I think that that encompasses a lot of things. But what barriers do you see that are out there? I mean, I think for me, where things get complicated is when uh, my gender and my sexuality conflate or intersect with race. So, you know, when I see I, I mean, certainly there are a lot more queer artists making music in a way that didn't exist when I was growing up. But again, the people that are allowed to be queer on stage tend to be white. And so for me, I think that that's one of the areas that I think is still hasn't really changed. You know, one of the pieces of advice I got when I first moved, or not advice, actually, uh, when I first moved to Toronto for music, so this was in 2003, my manager then at the time told me, no one's going to sign a brown artist in Canada. And you know, I look at the music scene now, 15 years later, and it doesn't seem to be that different, you know, mm -hmm. especially when I look at like who are on the sort of like the big summer festival lineups in Toronto. A lot of them are the same names that I used to see 10 years ago. And so for me, I think like certainly 
as someone who's been on like, you know, now both sides of the gender, the gender coin, I certainly feel like I might have experienced a kind of privilege as a male. So some of the experiences you're talking about to me, I haven't necessarily experienced that from a male perspective. I think where gender got complicated was again needing to perform hypermasculinity to overcompensate for my my queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now, as a trans person, I just like inevitably, I just always get misgendered by like whoever it is in the arena. Um, and so I kind of just like have to be okay with it essentially. Like I don't expect the sound person to like use my pronouns. And like, so it's sort of relinquishing this part of my human dignity for the sake of, you know, ease of everybody else. I feel like I can't weigh in super like deep into what it means to be feminine on stage um, as a trans person in the music industry because I mean I've only been out for a year so it's just and I haven't played that many shows and I feel like I was really lucky in the fall because you know the big tour we did was with a queer band so there was you know and they've worked really hard to make sure that like a lot of people in their team are women so there was just like a different kind of camaraderie like it was kind of interesting like how much more relaxed I felt on that tour because Mm -hmm. it's like wow like women get shit done and they're bosses but they're also respectful like just because you're a man doesn't mean you have to be an asshole you know like (laughs) or just because you're a boss like just because you're pro doesn't mean you have to be an asshole and I think Mm -hmm. for me it was so interesting being on that tour and being like I feel so relaxed on this tour and it's like yeah you put a bunch of women together and suddenly you know it's not to say that women don't fight or whatever but like it just it just felt so much more comfortable so yeah anyways to go back to your question I think that like I I feel like I don't necessarily have enough experience on you know the the female end of things to weigh in around barriers but I will say that for me like race tends to be where things get really mucky yeah I think though you are speaking to those experiences just from maybe from a different entry point because the idea that you had to act in a hyper-masculine way exactly. is denying the femininity that exactly. was in you even if you were identifying as a man. And that's exactly it, right? Right, like, and I think that that also, it's very problematic for men. It actually makes it really hard for men to work in those ways that you're describing that women work in, right? Where there's just this, like, there's more of an inherent respect. There's more of a we're all coming to the, the yeah. team, right? We're a team here as opposed to we're here to have to prove ourselves to one another, you know? And I think this feeling of, um, like, you were describing this idea where you had to, like, um, prove yourself, whether it was by playing all these instruments or by being... Very stiff when yeah, I was dancing, yeah. It's the same barrier. It's the same oppressive nature that's weighing down women and men. Totally. Right? And it's, but it's just, it's suppressing the femininity that in all of us and however you want to express that and giving us all this idea, even, even if you're a woman that's being sort of put on stage in these hypersexualized ways that women often are asked to perform, you know, mm-hmm, that you have mm-hmm. to wear like short dresses and high heels and makeup and you have to look a certain way and and embody this this certain thing to be a performer uh like in the, this very specific way, there's still an attitude that you need to bring even if it's to the sound check. Totally. That is 
fighting against that hyper masculinity or that alpha dog sort of scenario that you can't just have like a, a dignified conversation with somebody totally. and whether it's to ask for more or less of something in your monitor yeah. or whether it's to say actually I I prefer she pronouns you know do you mind exactly that that there are these environments where it doesn't feel comfortable to do that you know mm-hmm. absolutely and there are way more women in the music industry working in maybe more diverse ways and prominent ways. I think the women have always been there in the music of course, scene, you of know. Course. But we're starting to recognize those those places more and recognize the women that are there and that are working, but also starting to recognize those things that they bring as positive, you know, as opposed to comparing it to like, well, this would be the way that a man would do it and you have to do it that way because that's the that's the standard that's the status quo instead of being like well this is the way that i'm going to do this job as a woman and actually it might not be the same but i'm still bringing professionalism i'm still getting the job done exactly made a really interesting keynote speech which uh is also on your website which i also really think that people should read because you you made a lot of amazing points there for the publishing industry oh, but yeah. also just for people to be aware of what we're reading and to be aware of the mechanisms that are going on behind the scenes of the art industry in general right totally. that, that when we see you made a good point too about the people that are on stages at festivals right we trust those bookers or those publishers or those promoters or the record companies, I think general audiences just have this feeling of like, oh, well, they're aware of everybody that's out there and they're just making the best choices. And so I can just trust that those artists that they're putting forward are just the best of the best. And I don't have to, you know, necessarily seek out beyond that. And we forget to question what those standards are that are being used exactly. and, and that very narrow window that's that people are actually getting through, right? And so your speech to the publishing industry was about how to feature diverse voices, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. specifically more writers of color. Mm-hmm. And in your introduction, you said, is it a risk to publish more books that reflect what the world actually looks like <laughs> or is it a necessity? Right. Which is so powerful. It's like giving me oh. chills even right now just to read it out loud. Because I think it's it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Like, what are these risks that we're taking? Are they really risks or is it just a necessity? And even in your personal experience, you're speaking about the risk of just putting a dress on, you know, is it, and it, that it's an actual risk, a, you know, maybe a life or death risk in some, totally. in some places. But yet for you, maybe a necessity also in mm-hmm. terms of like where your heart is at and, and you know, the way that you want to express yourself. So what you would say the equivalent is in the music scene? What is that necessity in the music scene? I mean, I think that it's really like easy to get angry at institutions or organizers. And I see this happen all the time, like especially in Toronto, there's panels and it's like, you know, there'll be three people and, you know, it'll be like, well, you didn't have this voice on the panel. And I think that those conversations are so important. But for me, I guess I just like always go back to personal onus. Like it's like, yes, 
the Canadian music industry definitely likes to feature and highlight and celebrate certain kinds of musicians and certain kinds of voices. But what are you listening to at home? You know, like, and I think that that's the thing is that like, and what are you buying? Where are you putting your money? Like if, if you as a music listener care about quote unquote diversity, how are you actually showing support for it? And I think the hard thing about music is the conversation about music always gets sort of or becomes about personal preference. Well, I just, I just like this kind of music. But the thing about personal preference is it, I think it's a lot more complicated. I'm not saying that people don't have personal preference, but like we like that Britney Spears song because thousands of dollars were put into marketing that song and playing it over and over and over again until it's in you, <laughs> you know? So you, you want to hear it and you want to like, like it's, it's an addiction almost, right? Like you're, you're, and again, this is a Britney was the first person that came to mind. I like Britney's music. Like it's not, it's not about her. It's more just that like personal preference in the context of music is complicated. I don't want to take away from the fact that yes, you might be drawn to a particular kind of music, but I think it's always worth thinking about why, like, why are we, especially if the majority of what you're listening to is just male voices is just straight voices is just white, white singers right like if you are looking at your music catalog and that's what you're listening to and you're telling me that's personal preference I would love for you to sit down and think about why and simultaneously if you care about diversity so if you're like well no like I care about diversity I again I think it's really about like okay then what are we doing to support that. And that, that includes me, right? Like sometimes it involves like truthfully, sometimes it involves a bit of work. The couple times I've been an organizer in the city where I've had to organize an event or actually I'm recording a new album with my brother um, or to attached band. And I decided that there's a couple songs that I want a group of women of color to sing on. And I was like, Oh sure. Great. Like I have to, you know, find six. And then I started to reach out and I was like, this is actually hard and mm. I'm a woman of color and I'm finding this difficult and it's hard because of visibility, right? It's like I could, I was saying to my boyfriend, I was like, I could come up with like 10 white women in a second and it's because that's what I'm exposed to. That's what I know. It's not that women of color musicians don't exist in the city. There's hundreds, mm -hmm. but it's just that like in my Facebook feed, in the things that I'm looking at in now magazine, whatever it is, like I've been exposed to a certain kind. And I think that, you know, increasingly there have been more conversations about racism in the music industry. Like now did that article last year, but I think it's like really that daily practice of accountability every time you're purchasing something, you know, and I think in the book world, it's really interesting because I've read people who will be like, this year I'm only reading like books by authors of color. This year I'm only reading books by women. But I don't see that kind of responsibility or accountability happening with music listeners. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a music listener being like, this year I'm going to actively listen to only women artists or check out. Like the amount of time that I spend listening to men, I'm going to make sure that I'm also checking out. That kind of accountability piece I feel like isn't really happening in music. You're totally right. Like I have always tried to organize my books, like at least fiction, 
by male and female authors right. so that I just have this visual reminder of like, who are you reading totally. and what voices are featured prominently in your book collection? Like, is there a balance here? And I've also tried to organize them by like places that people are coming from, totally. you know, so, but I've never done that with my music iTunes, collection. Yeah. And right? again, yeah. And, and maybe that maybe it's also a little bit the medium that we were listening to music like on Spotify sure. or in iTunes, like we're not physically cataloging our CDs sure. in the same way that we might with books still. Absolutely. But it is not that doesn't let us off the hook. Well, There's and that's and that's I guess that's the thing is that it, like I said, you can be angry and you can point fingers, but ultimately we're all part of this system. And you know, like including me, like for a very long time, I wasn't buying music and was just like downloading wherever I could find. And I was like, I'm a musician. I I can do it. I'm owed this or whatever. But it's like. But then I would get frustrated about people. I'd put out an album, no one would buy it. And I was like, okay, like I'm part of this system. And if I really want people to, like all I can do is model behavior that I hope will inspire the same, you know? And so I think that, yeah, making, like being that conscious about the choices we're listening to can make a huge, huge difference. If everyone decided to put all of whatever the money they put into music, which let's be realistic, we don't really buy music anymore. But like, let's say people just put it into, let's say, women of color. Trust me, we would have a lot more women of color that would suddenly be like emerging everywhere, right? Because it's a business. So anyways, long answer. But I think that really the big thing is like, I would love to see more personal onus in the ways that I've seen in the literary world and the music world, which I just, I don't really see. love that. I think that that's maybe like a good start for my very last question, sure. um, which is actions that we could take as maybe individuals in the music industry. Like, I I think you're totally right that we don't we can't just put it on the institutions. We mm-hmm. can't just put it on the record producers or the bookers as a, a musician working in the music industry. I feel like it is also my responsibility to make that a more accessible environment totally. for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. and as a queer person, I definitely recognize that there's like everybody there is a player in making that a comfortable environment or an uncomfortable environment, you know? And it's like, yeah, the producer puts you there in the first place or the booker, but then that person is not the person that's on stage with you or that is in the sound booth or, you know? So Mm -hmm. I I think that there's the industry that maybe has control over kind of the bigger picture of things. And then there's us as individuals, you know? So I like that as as a start for the individual recommendation, which is just like, Think about the music that you're buying, you know, think about the ways that you're supporting musicians of color, but also people who have like a variety of gender identities and and sexual identities. And those things are not always out there, you know, to be perceived as like, you know, the thing that is being advertised to you. But But go find it. But go find it and be aware of the people that you're listening to. Understand, you know, what maybe what their identity is like, you know, check out like what they're telling people about themselves and, and to be more aware of that. So my last question is just like if you could make a recommendation or like a request or if there's something that um, maybe we could it could be a two part question like industry wise, you know, big picture wise and then individuals to make the music scene more inviting, more welcoming, more inclusive for 
maybe trans people specifically, but I think if it becomes more inclusive for trans people, hopefully it becomes more inclusive for, you know, a lot of other people too. Industry-wise, I think that there's lots of work that needs to happen with, like, the major institutions. Like, I mean, the Junos are a really great example, right? Like, I don't know how much you've been following the conversations around the lack of women in general who've been nominated in the past couple of years or in general or and like specifically in like the production categories and that sort of stuff. And their response to it has been like really, really like the Juno's response to the criticism has been um, really problematic saying, well, these were just the people we could find or something along those lines or like, you know, again, there's always this idea that like going back to what you were saying too, is that like, well, we found the best ones or like they don't exist, you know? And it's like, then we're not just doing enough work then. So for me, then it goes about like, what kinds of forms of mentorship are we providing so that, so let's say hypothetically, and we know that this isn't true, but hypothetically, if there are very, very few female producers, what is the industry doing to ensure that women feel like it's a field they can explore by providing opportunities, you know? And I, again, I see this in different fields. Like, I just looked at one, I think it was maybe through TIFF, but like a filmmaking one, again, specifically for a particularly underrepresented group. And it was like a mentorship kind of thing. And it speaks to like developing. And I think that I don't know how much work is being done in developing female musicians in the industry. And so I would love to see more of that. It's not enough. If if the problem is that we don't exist, then there needs to be a better infrastructure to support more of us to come into the field. I don't believe that we don't exist, but if that's the angle that we're using, then we can't stop there is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And then from the more personal, I would love to see us move. And this is like an artist plea, but I would love to see us move back to a culture where we buy music, you know, as someone who remembers lining up outside of HMV for the new Mary J. Blige album and like sitting with liner notes and who also on the opposite side has experienced the ways that the internet has in some ways really benefited me as a musician in terms of being able to sell, like send music to like someone in Finland, but also means that music is feels like is one of the few art forms that like has just lost commercial value. Like Mm -hmm. people will, one of the things I love about book world is people, people say books are dead, but people buy books. They, people want the tangible people will buy art. Like in this city, people who, who like, I know people who like the idea of buying a CD or vinyl or whatever is like, but they will buy a nice piece of like, you know, a painting or a sculpture. So, I mean, from just like, like a baseline, it's like, if we can come back to a culture of buying music is just seeing art as value, seeing music as value, you know, like you spend so much money and time on these projects and then you get your band camp stats and it's like sold one album today, you know, and you're just like, it's, it's demoralizing. Right. And, but then you look at your streams and it's like, but people are streaming it. It's one thing if nobody likes the album, if you don't like the album, don't buy it. But if you're streaming it and you're listening to it every day and you have the funds, please like support the music. And when you go to shows, if you go to shows, be present, like engage, like engage with the artists. Like, you know, again, these feel like really baseline. They don't really speak to the specificity of gender or race. But like, I think that these are things that like, just as an artist, I would love to see um, in the music industry and specifically because I think that there are two things that like I see in other art arenas and that also affect whether or not underrepresented voices decide to be musicians, right? Like for me as uh, like an immigrant, my as a child of immigrants, 
music was never seen as like a viable career. Mm-hmm. My parents were always like, get a day job. Music will never. And the thing is, they were right. Right. Like 15 years later, I'm still working a nine to five. Mm-hmm. And and that's why so many like artists of color or various like underrepresented groups decide not to pursue music because it, it isn't a viable career. But if we all decided that it had value, then I think that more people would feel inclined to to take that leap. So absolutely. Well, and I think that you're right that they're general recommendations. You're not speaking specifically about purchasing music of a certain person or a I certain, cover that part. <laughs> but it's there. It's there because you're absolutely right that if you're only going on Spotify or you're only buying things off of iTunes or you're only accessing your music recommendations through the Junos or through these like, you know, um, labels, then you're really getting such a small sector of the people who are actually making music. And if you're going out to see live music and you're seeking out those opportunities to see smaller shows, to see shows that are being put on by people who have all sorts of different identities that are not being promoted on these main stages, then it's a different level of the industry, totally. right? And it's this way that we can have more of a of a personalized economy, much in the same way that we have like a local food movement, you exactly. know, like a local like music industry. And we're so lucky to live in Toronto where any day of the week you can walk down the street and find an amazing artist like putting on an amazing show and to walk in and you're right to be present and to not just walk in and be like, oh, we'll grab a beer here and oh, there's music. Oh, there's cover. I don't know if I want to pay. Just to walk through the door just pay the ten dollars to walk through the door experience that person take their cd home like take a risk like what you just spent 20 30 40 50 dollars on your bar tab but you won't spend ten dollars <laughs> taking that person's cd home you know like well listen that's... to it and i think also you made an interesting comment a, a little while back about this idea that like those songs that we think we want to hear because there's been so much money put into them there's a very specific kind of production happening there totally. and our ear gets very accustomed to that shininess that product totally but to listen to somebody's independent album that was recorded in a basement you know to listen to the music that people are recording live to support those people that are just making music in any way that they can means that they might get to the point where they make that kind of produced album that puts them in that category, totally. right? But to to support people on a, a lateral basis means that you're probably accessing people that are, you know, maybe in a more diverse category or that there's just more more diversity there to to um to add to your shelf of CDs. Totally. Like I don't want to be a dead horse here, but like People love music, right? Like people like music is just such a big part of people's lives. And yet, like, again, I think my experience in book world is like people will literally be like, what is the best outlet for me to buy your book so you get paid the most money? I think it's just like really thinking about like if you love the music, if you like an artist. And I think Toronto especially is just like we do not. I mean, this is like the criticism of like the forever. But like, I think that like Toronto, but also Canada, like it's so easy to just sort of like dismiss Canadian music and then the industry. And it sort of becomes this vicious cycle. It's like the industry sucks or the music sucks. But like, I've actually been spending the past three months just being like, actually, I'm going to listen to Canadian music. I'm going to check out what's happening here. And my mind has been blown. I was like, there is a lot of talent here, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I think, where's our Canada listens from CBC? Well, right? that's like, the thing. And I just like I think that. Yeah, good point. 
it's so interesting because Canadian identity so often is like looking to the US Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason in other art forms I do feel like there there is a kind of like there is a Canadian literary pride you know people are proud to celebrate Canadian writers but musicians no no so I think that or we only but when they leave and they come back exactly exactly exactly. like you know and it's such a cliche that I could finish your sentence right like so (laughs) I, I think that like yeah if we can create an environment where you know, Canadian artists can be celebrated. Musicians can be celebrated in our own country where we don't have to leave and have find recognition. And just like spending that time to like, yeah, really like look at what's happening here, I think would be I I think that would be I think that we have a responsibility as music listeners in Canada to do that. Well, uh, you've given us lots of food for thought. Um, Please edit half of this. <laughs> I want to keep every single word. Um, no, it's been a, a delight for me to talk to you and just to think about these things from you know a different perspective. And it, it's definitely inviting me to think about my own experience in a different way um, and empowering me as not only a, a musician, but a music listener and an audience member. And so I want to encourage all of our listeners to go to your website, vivekshreya.com, and listen to it because <laughs> yeah. the music is brilliant. You have so much work up there. Like you've got literary work. You've got tons of music up there. Your um, most recent album that we were talking about, Part-Time Women with the Queer Songbook Orchestra, is just spectacular. Thank you. Buy it on vinyl, people. It sounds Limited edition. amazing <laughs> on vinyl. And keep your eyes out for more Vivek Shreya. I, I know that you'll have exciting things coming up in the future. Thank and, you so much for having me. And look forward to, uh, to hearing it all. Thank yeah. you. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here. It was the second and last part of the sixth episode. We want to thank both Carly and Vivek for sharing their ideas and thoughts with us. We also want to thank you all for listening to our podcast and everyone who supported us. And a special recognition to Marshall Bureau, who composed all the scores for the quantization. For previous episodes and more information, please check our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Here we are closing this episode with one of Vivek's songs, Girl, It's Your Time. Girl, it's your time Don't ever, ever change your mind Cause you're mine All those years of playing tough All those years I gave you
Podcast.